Nine minutes it is before 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our wrap of the top business stories and uh, taking stock of uh, the big happenings in the world of money and power. And uh, to help us take a look at some of these stories, I'm joined by Nolwandle Mtombini, who's a market analyst. Nolwandle, good evening to you and welcome. Good, good, good. Nolwandle, I want us to maybe start off there with some of the news that came through. Uh, South Africa's inflation number. Uh, dipping slightly below, uh, I guess, uh, the uh, target band of 3 to 6%, and also coming in much lower than some of the consensus uh, expectations and estimates. What do you make of, uh, I guess, uh, the rate of growth in prices in the month of February? Because often, you know, we, we like to say it's uh, the change in prices, no, not necessarily it's the rate of change in prices. Um, what do you make of what happened in February, and what does it tell us about uh, the economy then? Yes. So I think for, you know, the number that came out, I think, you know, I was pretty much expecting a 2.9 print um, because I've been following this quite closely. Mm. And on on my estimates and, you know, the team that I work with, it is right in line because what happened is was that many of the medical aids froze premiums this year Mm. and spending on medical, medical insurance and medical aid is a significant proportion of the basket. And, you know, where much of the expectations as far as um, expectations were is that, you know, it wasn't accounted for as to be such a significant impact. And it came through as a surprise. And as a, as a, you know, as a result, the actual inflation number that was printed and the rate of change was lower than expectations, even below the 3 to 6% target. Um, but this is just one month print. And it doesn't now change the prediction and the outlook for the rain of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I guess, Nolaja, the other issue, of course, is that uh, we have the Monetary Policy Committee sitting uh, this week. Um, and they said to make a decision, I think, tomorrow sometime uh, on uh, the future path of interest rates. Um, and quite clearly, I, I guess, a lot on the horizon that uh, might uh, gravitate towards at least one rate hike before the end of the year. I mean, we saw what NERSA came out with. Uh, from an electricity tariffs perspective, we've seen what the Brent crude oil price has been doing. Uh, and if we see, uh, you know, some rand weakness, uh, then that could uh, change the inflation outlook entirely. So, you know, all those things are that you just mentioned are supply side shocks that, you know, ra- rising, um, re- uh, raising the interest rates, the repo rates wouldn't, you mm. know, infect, affect demand. So, the SAR will be looking at that and thinking, well, you know, doesn't help, doesn't help. So I think when you know SAR makes these decisions, they'll take into account, you know, demand side factors. The fact that you know the the Brent price, um, the Brent crude oil price went up, um, petrol hikes, all those things, whether you raise the repo rate or not, it's not going to change anything. So there's an element where you know there will be those upside surprises that were not factored in, say, a year ago or even a quarter ago in the QPM, but you know they will not really you know, make or break decision whether or not to raise or, or raise or keep raise and hold. So as it stands now, even, you know, despite a lot of these things, which are now become to be expected because the move in the oil price and in the, in the, in the electricity hikes has been known for a couple of months in the making mm. and expectations have adjusted accordingly. So we're not expecting any big major change in terms of the Reserve Bank and their policy meeting. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift our attention, uh, I guess, away from that story, and uh, we'll certainly be following quite closely what comes out of that uh, Monetary Policy Committee meeting. I mean, we know in the last meeting, uh, only a sole voice that was calling for some uh, interest rate cut. 
and uh, the consensus certainly being to keep rates unchanged and I think many in the market are expecting the same over the next day or so. Um, and take a look at the National Treasury now. Uh, we uh, certainly knew last year on the back of the higher than anticipated budget deficit due to you know, COVID-19 relief measures that uh, the Treasury was going to, I guess, uh, be buying and uh, uh, auctioning out a lot more of their debt uh, than uh, would have been expected prior to COVID. And it seems now there's a bit of a tapering off of that. Uh, weekly uh, bond auctions down 2.6 billion rand. And uh, I guess that's the plan from the end of this month. Definitely. So, the you know, the higher than expected resource prices are the gift that keeps giving. Mm. And the Treasury found themselves with a higher cash pile than expected because of, you know, many of the revenue that came through from the mining and, you know, the production coming through there and the favorable mining prices. So, you know, as a result, they did, you know, the, the minister did mention that, you know, obviously the projections as far as, Debt issuances would go down, and this is coming through now. And we're seeing, you know, the weekly auctions are coming below what was previously previously expected. Mm. And this is because government has found themselves in a position where, you know, they have more money than they expected. Therefore, the level of debt they need, they're going to try to reduce debt. And now, to you know, expectations are we're not going to get to the hundred percent that you know that we were previously guided towards, and it's just following that trend. Mm-hmm. And and I guess w- when you look at this in the context of um, the price of some of this debt, I mean, and also the the term structure of it, I mean, a lot of people have said uh, a lot of the um, debt that South Africa issued uh, during the tough times last year was, uh, you know, of a much shorter term nature. Yes, rand denominated and taken up by some of our banks, uh, but it did certainly, I guess, uh, you know, tilt the balance of uh, much of our uh, more longer term debt, which South Africa had. Um, I guess become accustomed to issuing. Yeah, and the problem is that the you know the the yield curve is still remains quite steep, and by this meaning longer term debt is obviously more expensive. Mm. So if you're trying to manage your pricing with debt, you're going to issue at the lower the front end of the curve, which is much cheaper, and that's what government did, and it's continuing to to issue more on the shortest side of the curve because it's cheaper, and fortunately because now they've had to reduce. Uh, the level of insurances per week it's also going to benefit, you know, even the actual actual amount of debt spending that they have to to to, to put through. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess a big part of that debt story and uh, some of the contingent liabilities that uh, the Treasury is going to have to think about has to do with that big albatross, which is ESCOM. Yes, and we're so lucky that we actually can speak with lights on today. <laughs> well, some people are listening to us in the darkness. I can assure you. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the re- latest, you know, murmurings around ESCOM is that there's basically two options of how to deal with the debt. And those two options are either SPV, which will be separate. So an SPV will typically be a you know, different vehicle, which is ring-fenced, mm. and will have its own conditions and own, you know, debt agreements for any debt that sits in there, or it will be taken over by Treasury. Um, that said, though, even if an SFPV would be formed, it still would need to be guaranteed by Treasury. And you know the you know the current news that's floating around is that the debt that would be sitting in the SPV would be at least 100 billion, compared to the say 470 billion that total debt of ESCOM. Hmm. So it's you know you know the minimum would be less than 25 percent of the debt. Hmm. And the thing. 
is is that you know we might create a SPV, um, and this SPV will probably be subordinated, which means that the cost of that debt would have to be structured and would actually increase. So, without knowing what it is, it sounds like ultimately there will be a possibility that the debt actual servicing cost will increase. Mm. But you see, Nolwaji, I mean, I'm sitting here asking myself, um, there's all ma- manner of permutations or I guess different sort of approaches that uh, are on the table here. And, and one of these is the special purpose vehicle. But I, I seem to think that at the end of all of these different suggested approaches is the same outcome, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, the sovereign's going to have to take on some of the risk associated with this particular debt burden, even if I guess the outcome is, is to have um, a deleveraged, uh, a partially deleveraged ESCOM. At the end of the day, it's about really shifting that from Megawatt Park to the union buildings, I guess. It is. It's, you know, substance of reform, you're still going to have Treasury sitting with a massive debt on ESCOM. I think, you know, what will look good on paper is that ESCOM, we will no longer see, say, this almost 500 billion of debt, and if we can see, say, 400 billion of debt, I mean, you know, to rating agencies, those things matter. Mm. And and ultimately, when you look on the financial statement, if you look at the debt servicing costs, they will also reduce. So those financial metrics matter and the rating for it and, you know, obviously the risk associated with Eskimo as an entity. I think a lot of this has to do with managing public perception and international investor mm. perception around Eskom. You know, these are pretty much semantics to kind of, you know, kind of cover these things up. And with us being in junk status now, I think really one of the priorities for Treasury is also to get us out of junk status. So it really is exactly as you say. I mean, I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter. Treasury is going to sit with a whole bunch of debts related to ESCOM and whether it's sitting in an SPV or not. Um, and even if in a situation where the actual cost of servicing the debt is increasing, the fact that, you know, ESCOM has become this big black blank spot black spot to our name from international investor perspective. And I think ultimately one of the concerns is making sure that the risk associated to the fiscus around the perception of ESCOM is kind of reduced in some way, whether it's actually practically realistic or not. Mm. And I guess, yeah, there's the other question. I mean, we certainly had a lot of conversations about, you know, this particular issue. How do you manage the, the debt pile at ESCOM? How do you deal with the balance sheet issues? But, but I often like to bring it back to the operational issues. I mean, uh, that income statement. How do you make sure that you collect on the revenue that's due to the utility? How do you make sure that the utility is able to manage its supply chain, uh, realize some cost savings and be able to, you know, to deal with, with a headcount that everybody has agreed is certainly, I guess, much larger than uh, what uh, ESCOM in its new envisaged state might require. How do we deal with that uh, in the context, I guess, of uh, this uh, sort of debt issue that looms very large in the shadows? So you're asking me, how do I solve Hiscom's <laughs> problem? That's yeah, basically how do you, what you're saying. Nolwanda, we you, need you, you to help us. For the well, we need you to help us. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think we have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> we need you to help us. I mean, so 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 certainly to my mind, uh, one part of that story is about trying to collect monies that are owed to Eskom by municipalities and other organs of state. Uh, which uh, certainly don't do well in honoring their obligations to the people who give them electricity. Um, and then, of course, there's the other story around the restructuring. And I don't know if, Nolwandle, uh, uh, some of your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I certainly uh, am yet to be convinced that there's a very direct link between solving the 
operational and income statement issues at ESCOM and, of course, bundling it up and cutting up in different pieces? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm I'm very much with you on that. I think, you know, I think the first and the priority of concerns is stability of the grid mm. because from that flows everything else. So if we have stable functioning, you know, all the all the power stations are working, then we have, you know, you know, certainty in terms of, you know, supply, which allows for investor confidence, therefore flows in more investment, and also revenue will also pick up, we will get consumption, and you can also refinance debt so that it's lowered. Mm. So all those things stem from that. Sure. So for me, whether we restructure or create different entities doesn't matter because where we're sitting at now, we're still having the same problems we were having in 2007. Mm, mm, mm. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, certainly a tough one. And of course, it does remain the sort of uh, largest single risk to uh, mm. the prospects of the South African economy, uh, the resolution of our energy supply challenges. And of course, that energy transition that we need to undertake. Um, but let's shift our attention to home choice. Uh, and I was saying when I was um, introducing some of our discussions for the day, I mean, these are the guys uh, who sell, you know, uh, um, you know, and uh, all manner of other things to, uh, you know, our folks. Uh, and it seems, I guess, um, a slight shift in some of the operating models uh, away from just a sole focus on an agency type model uh, to also setting up, uh, you know, kiosks and uh, trying to reach uh, the online consumer in their segment. Yes, I think, you know, we've seen COVID as forced online. You know, for every industry has to, where especially that is retail and consumer facing, you have to have a you know, online presence. And in the event that you are exposed to, for example, a, you know, the township especially, I think, you know, being able to have distribution, which is mm. not reliant on online has to be present and available. Mm. And that's the thing now that they've realized is that, you know, we are exposed to a segment where we can't just say go online. Mm. So, you know, they've had to adapt the model of working and hopefully what they can do is with that, use that, you know, you know, distribution presence of on the ground to convert some of that into online as well. Mm. But it definitely has been, have, they've had to adapt push more into online and you know but and the thing is if you see them get final and so it's not one of those things where you need to really have the feel I hope our parents aren't listening into the show but they are fine <laughs> Yeah, so mm-hmm. so for me, what's interesting also is, I guess, if you think about you know the bedding that you're referring to and um, some of, uh, and the homeware in relation, of course, to the electronic appliances they also sell, the bedding tends to be much higher margin type uh, business than, of course, the electronic appliances, and it seems it hasn't moved much during the lockdown. Uh, while appliances, I guess, be- because people are spending a lot more time at home, uh, probably mm-hmm. moved a, a lot more, and uh, I guess as, also as consumers were responding to some of the discounts. Yeah, so I think, you know, what was a very big surprise last year was that at some point in time, there was just like this pent-up demand in like household items and renovations mm. and very home-based spending that, you know, that shot up. And understandably, you know, with our culture, you know, buying of Ingobo and Duvets, it's a lot of it is that demand comes from Makunim mm. you know, especially my 
sambe no one bazo shada yes what if i know humble you know members so young ladies so understandably that that significant portion of demand will come down and it'll you know substitute something else because but also what we saw is that there's always a substitution effect and that spending goes somewhere else such as like homeware or innovations or ultimately then it goes into saving where we've seen the banking sector have just like enormous amount of growth in terms of the savings and deposits and that shift that also happened for home choice especially in the higher levels of lockdown where we see consumers going for you know lower uh, lower expenditure items not necessarily because you know there's no demand it's just that you know because of the lockdown it forced people to go through to you know other items of of spending mm, mm. I, i guess for me the the other rather surprising element um to to to, to a business model like the one that home choice has which might not really be self-evident or apparent to many users is because a lot of the sales go through the credit channels they also have um, i guess a dedicated channel for that which is the fin choice business uh, and they weren't able to offer any loans between march and may in the hard lockdown last year uh, but uh, certainly also seeing i guess the insurance costs on the back of um, defaults and uh, retrenchment and uh, higher funeral claims also increasing somewhat how how was their financial services arm the financial services arm of home choice performed yeah so if you look in terms of how they make money they have much bigger margins in their financial service division because very you know i think it's not the right thing but they layer on all the fees and everything and all these additional products they to create the margin so the retail division actually lower margin compared to their financing divisions because mm-hmm. they can add on ancillary products which you know you know morally is it right or wrong we can debate that and that's where the shift was but because of the higher risk associated with the income segments that they are positioned in they decided to withdraw disbursements and lower the exposure and actually you know gave out less loans for example during those months of lockdown because you can imagine the segment that they're faced with which is you know typically you know under 10,000 rand earners and we know you know in terms of what the lockdown did is that there was a lot of unemployment in the lower income groups so it became even more risky for them and we saw the same thing happening with many other lenders where they pulled pulled away completely from lending because of you know the higher risk during that environment and ultimately that affected them if you look into the retail sales you know that didn't go down by that much actually i think it was 8% down which is not too bad but from the finance means we had a much bigger drop because they started to you know pull back because of the tough times it's in and then i think later on it was really started picking up again mm mm-hmm. so certainly one we're going to have to watch quite closely i mean certainly a lot of the retail businesses who have a similar type of model but also servicing mm-hmm. a uh, similar type of consumer segment and uh, we'll have to leave it there nolwandle for this evening but uh, thank you once again to you for your time my pleasure that there was uh, nolwandle mtombeni market analyst uh, speaking to us uh, this evening for our wrap of the top business stories